Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're a male car with his hands, look off his tail with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would who, 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 who's life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, Especially at first, uh, enormous amount of guilt remorse afterwards but then that impulse to do it again to come back even stronger when the assistant commissioner of the australian federal police colin winchester was assassinated in his driveway in the summer of 1989 the nation was sent into a state of shock these feelings were taken over by anger as the investigation dragged on until finally, five years after the murder, an alleged lone crazed gunman named David Eastman was arrested. Did the police have the right man, or was this killing, as speculated by the media, a professional hit by the all-powerful Calibrian Mafia? Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to dozens of other episodes. In fact, we dropped a new one just last week, Mm -hmm. including our remarkable and delicious early stuff and levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. All right, Tara, we've combined forces on this one because this is a corker of a tale, lots of twists and turns. So many. I think it's about time we got murdery. It's a warm summer night in January 1989 when Canberra Police Chief Colin Winchester finally arrives home after a long day. As usual, he parks in his elderly neighbour's driveway, right next to his, as she feels safer knowing there's a car in front of her house to make it look occupied. Colin had just been visiting his brother to discuss an upcoming hunting trip and have a couple of after-work beers. A few minutes later, when he still hadn't entered the house... Colin's wife Gwen, wondering what the hold-up is, pops outside to check. She sees Colin slumped in the driver's seat with one leg hanging out of the open car door. Thinking he may have had a heart attack, she rushes back inside to call an ambulance. 
But Colin has not suffered a heart attack. The assistant police commissioner has been shot twice in the head. It will take over five years and one of the most sophisticated and controversial forensic investigations in Australian criminal history to charge someone with his murder. Colin Stanley Winchester was born on October 18, 1933 in a small mining town just south of Canberra in the ACT, which is an acronym for Australian Capital Territory. Being the son of a baker, Colin was raised in a hard-working family. After finishing high school, he went on to work in the mines near Captain's Flats. His keen sense of justice and desire to help people led him to joining the police force at the age of 28. Colin would go on to marry local girl Gwen, and the couple would have two children. In the 1960s and 70s, Colin climbed through the ranks of the police force. He completed detective training as well as psychology, accounting and several advanced management courses. Friends say it wasn't necessarily due to his ambition. Colin just had an unquenchable thirst for knowledge. In 1979, he was appointed Chief of the Criminal Investigation Branch when the ACT, Commonwealth Forces, Customs and Narcotics were merged into the Australian Federal Police, also known as the AFP. The AFP are like Australia's FBI and ATF, as well as handling Canberra's day-to-day policing. In 1984, after 23 years in the service, Colin was promoted to the rank of Assistant Commissioner of the AFP. His colleagues described him as a blunt-speaking, clean-skinned cop with a strong sense of duty. Colin Winchester was the kind of guy no one had a cross word about, but by 1988 there was one man in Canberra that decided to make the top cop a focal point for all of his vitriol. He was disgruntled former public servant and unemployed serial annoyer David Harold Eastman. David Eastman was quite a clever dick and a complete pain in everyone's asses. The son of a respected wealthy former diplomat, David received a fancy private school education and graduated from Canberra Grammar with the prestigious title of Ducks of the School, which is an honour he shares with former Prime Minister Gough Whitlam. David attended Australian National University studying economics. Here he heckled the speakers at public lectures, argued about economics and even punched a presenter. Believing the rules shouldn't apply to him, he was escorted out of ANU's law library for yelling and harassing staff. One day David ridiculed a French lecturer's credentials and had to be forcibly removed by the police. After university, David obtained a job in the public service, scoring a position in the Treasury Department. But over the coming years, David became convinced he was a victim of multiple injustices. He decided to pursue all perceived slights and began a relentless harassment campaign of those he believed had wronged him or just plain pissed him off. He accused fellow public servants of scheming against him and being involved in corruption. He bombarded the media, politicians and anyone who would listen with his accusations, writing hundreds of in-depth articles and letters to newspapers critiquing government policy. David really liked to complain, Tara. (laughs) If he had represented Australia in the complaining Olympics, we would have won gold. He once phoned police to accuse a neighbour of flushing her toilet too loudly. And this one. He complained to a bus company that its drivers pulled into the curb in an intimidating manner. Nice one, David. We prefer buses to be tranquil and unassuming when they pull over too. Oh yeah, I like them to be um, cheerful. Hmm. Some of his claims were even raised in Parliament but none were ever substantiated. 
In 1977, 31-year-old David Eastman was passed over for a promotion at the Treasury Department. This would not stand, and in a fit of rage, he quit. But before long, he started suffering quitter's remorse. Over the next decade, David waged a relentless but pointless campaign to re-enter the public service. The self-centred rage was strong in David, and as time passed, his frustration simmered and they'd boiled over, and he was charged with making various death threats to multiple people. In December 1987, David was living in a flat in Canberra when he got in a spot of biffo with his neighbour Andrew Russo over a parking space. David was surprised when police charged him with assault. Once again, he thought that he was the victim of a miscarriage of justice. David was convinced the world was conspiring against him. More importantly, he thought the assault charge would nix his pipe dream of being rehired by the public service. All through the next year, he campaigned furiously to get the assault matter dropped, phoning the media, politicians and anybody in power who he thought might be able to squash the charge. Now Barney, the public service was always his nemesis, but now the Canberra police were also on his shit list. David insisted on meeting with top cop Colin Winchester because he believed the newly appointed ACT region police chief, as he put it, would be a new broom, as in to sweep out corruption. In December 1988, at the request of several senior politicians, Colin Winchester agreed to meet with David at headquarters to discuss his conspiracy claims. Colin offered to shake David's hand as he entered his office. David refused, saying, I will shake your hand after you sort this shit out. Colin listened politely to David's complaints. The meeting ended with Colin agreeing to look into his case and see whether there had been any unfair bias. That was not good enough for David. He told Colin to get fucked and stormed out. Colin made inquiries into David's grievances, but he rejected them all as being groundless. David was less than thrilled to find out a few days later the assault charge would still stand, the case would proceed, and he would be required to face court in a few weeks' time. Colin and Gwen Winchester had owned their suburban house in the Canberra suburb of Deakin since 1966. Deakin is home to the Lodge, which is the Prime Minister's residence, and the Royal Australian Mint. Several embassies, senior public servants and wealthy retirees also call it home. On the night of January 10th, 1989, when Colin arrived home and stepped out of the car, a single gunshot hit him in the back of the head, killing him instantly. Then a second shot hit him above his right ear. Inside the house, his wife Gwen heard Colin's car park, and she would later recall hearing two small cracks. She assumed at the time that it was just neighbourhood children throwing pebbles which is what kids in Canberra do. Yeah, they throw rocks at yeah. houses. Mm -hmm. One investigator would say later of that night, it was a surreal atmosphere with a large number of police attending. There was an air of disbelief and incredulity that this could have happened. People were in an absolute state of shock. Police ballistic expert and forensic investigator, his name now subject to a gag order, let's call him Barry Peters, was picked up by police from his Melbourne home and flown by private jet to Canberra, arriving at around 1am. Two spent bullet shells were recovered from the broken glass below the driver's side door, but little else was found. On the morning of Wednesday, January 11th, Australia was stunned to wake up to the news that Assistant Federal Police Commissioner Colin Winchester had been assassinated. Political assassinations are not a regular occurrence in Australia. 
Roadblocks were quickly set up around Canberra. Police stopped more than 2,000 people to ask for their details. Over 700 houses were door knocked, motels were checked and cops interviewed more than 1,200 people. Federal Police Commissioner Peter McCauley said through tears on TV later that night, This is my saddest day. I've known Colin as a friend and colleague for 25 years. Now Tara, this wasn't a cop being shot by a bank robber in the line of duty. This was a cold-blooded assassination of one of Australia's top-ranked policemen and the reaction was immediate and nationwide. With scant details to report, the media speculated that this was a professional execution with underworld overtones. The authorities were also looking into the angle that the Mafia had hired a professional hitman to get this top cop out of the way. Colin Winchester and the Federal Police were involved in investigating organised crime. There was talk about the involvement of the powerful Calibrian Mafia, known as the Nagata or Honoured Society, who believed Colin had double-crossed them in a 1980s undercover sting. He was also instrumental in investigations of other syndicates operating in the Riverina and Griffith areas. The AFP assembled their A-team of top detectives. Their priority, to discover the motive for the murder, locate any witnesses, gather forensic evidence and find the murder weapon. The scientific investigation centred on forensic and ballistic expert Barry Peters. To identify the ammunition used in the murder, Peters searched Colin's body for the GSR or gunshot residue deposited on his wounds when fired on at close range. The pattern of the stippling of the GSR in concentric circles around the wounds indicated how far the gun was from Colin when fired. GSR was also found on his hands and jacket, which would prove vital in identifying what firearm was used. Peter was able to identify the ammunition as an inexpensive Korean PMC brand of supersonic bullets. PMC rounds have hollow points that unfold on impact and produce a sharp edge flower that cuts through flesh. The markings on the shell casings revealed the murder weapon to be a Ruka 10-22 self-loading carbine, which was a common sporting rifle in Australia at the time. The next task was to identify the other GSR and gun propellant in and around the car. Amongst some microscopic evidence that Peter found on Colin and his car were two mysterious kinds of GSR, which would later prove to be links to the killer. One was a heavily charred particle called chopped disc residue. Remember that, Tara? While the other was a residue from two ammunition brands that were quite different from the PMC brand used to kill Colin Winchester. But more on that later. As the forensic investigation continued, other detectives were seeking out anyone who might have seen or heard anything on the night of the murder. A woman who lived behind the Winchester's house told police that she heard footsteps on a path behind her place shortly before Colin was shot. She then heard them come back a few minutes later. She also heard a voice muttering and a car start, then drive away. One of the Winchester's neighbours told police that two nights before the murder, she was walking down Lawley Street when she saw a blue car parked near the Winchester's house. She said that when she walked by the car, the driver seemed to deliberately conceal his face. Thinking this was suspicious, she tried to make a mental note of the number plate. She told detectives the licence number was YPQ038. But police checks quickly established that the car with that plate was definitely not in Lawley Street that night. Detectives spent months following up various leads, including a claim that two Mafia hitmen had been imported from Italy. But to Barry Peters' expert eye, the murder appeared to be anything but professional. 
a few very amateurish things stood out. Firstly, the killer left two cartridge cases on the ground at the crime scene, and secondly, they used a silencer on a high-velocity rifle. Any person with any understanding of firearms understands that a silencer won't muffle a high-velocity discharge. Thirdly, there were other weapons better suited to professional hits. Also, the firing pin was not altered in any way which made the firearm used very identifiable. Despite detectives' extensive inquiries, no evidence supported any of the media's mafia theories. But the name that kept popping up as a person of interest was David Harold Eastman. We'll be back with part two of the assassination of Colin Winchester after this. Hey Barney. Yes, Tara. I have two questions for you. Who's the Zodiac Killer and what time is it? Clearly it's both of us and it's True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us to give us your crabs. <laughs> to give us crabs <laughs> and your recommendation for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. We've got one here from Alan Hofsenberger. From Cedar Rapids in Iowa. Hey, Alan. I see him online all the time. He listens with his mum. He does. Hey, Alan's mum. Hey, Alan's mum. And he writes, Hello, Tara and Barney. I have a two-for-one special for you today. Sweet. As a relatively young podcast listener, I went from zero to binge after discovering the ability to binge 21st century radio bliss. <laughs> I was lucky enough to become friends with one of the casters, and she gave me many, many recommendations. Two of these recommendations I am now sending to you all. James Petragalli and Jimmy Wiseman host two true crime podcasts, one focusing on murders in small towns, called Small Town Murder. Oh, why do they call it that? And one featuring the crimes and degenerate behaviours of celebrities called Crime in Sports. These two comedic tale-tellers cover cannibals, cannabis, cricket and carnivals. That's my four favourite C words. How about you, cunt? Oh, I like crumpet, crackle, uh, cat. Cat's good. Mm. Carrot? Yeah, carrots are all right. They start off every single one of their murder shows giving a warning that if you do not enjoy comedy and murder, you better leave now. That is why I had to share them with the rest of you. Oh, yeah, we love those guys. Even though there are no fuck knuckles, there are a few cunts, Mm -hmm. plenty of bad accents... And lots and lots of heart. I love that band. (laughs) From their show, I now know what to avoid if you do not want to have life fall apart, including such things as do not name your kid after yourself. Good advice. Barney Jr. Mm -hmm. Don't move back to your hometown and do not keep a teenager in your hit squad. Oh yeah, it didn't go down so great for us when we had one. My friend and I often wonder what it'd be like to have all four of you together, covering a crime in a small town in the heart of Australia, where we can have a shit in a bucket dancing cheek to cheek with I've got a mortgage and let's get murdery, getting yelling out alongside, shut up and give me murder. (laughs) Make it happen, Alan. (laughs) Make it happen, Alan. Make it happen, Alan's mum. Yeah, You have the power in this relationship, I'm sure. Is Alan allowed to come play with us? 
I hope you both give these pods a try and thank you for your constant laughter and debauchery I enjoy daily. Oh, well, thank you, Alan. Always a friend, Alan. Well, you're our friend too, Alan. Yep. Yeah, and thanks for that. If you want to submit a true crime nerd time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to do that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now for part two of the assassination of Colin Winchester. Two detectives who interviewed David Eastman at his unit the day after the murder asked him about his movements the night before. He told them that he was out driving alone in Canberra, but he couldn't remember exactly where he'd been. He said he thought he might have gone out aimlessly driving to vague locations at around 8pm, stopped to pick up some takeaway food and uh, got home around 10 o'clock. Yeah, he was pretty cagey. He made sure his lawyer was present too. A little sausage dog. Yeah. Yeah, he had a little sausage dog. He had a dash hound on his lap. When he was interviewed by the police. Well, I mean, that's how you do it. Oh, that's right. What he didn't tell police in that first interview was that at 11 pm, he visited a brothel and spent some time with a sex worker. As he had no real alibi, police began a more thorough investigation into his background. They quickly compiled a long list of his various rage soaked dealings with authorities and the many threats that he'd made. They particularly noted one incident at police headquarters a week before the murder when David gestured towards Colin Winchester's office saying that he was corrupt and had a lot to answer for. A week after the murder, police returned to interview David again and to make a detailed search of his home and his car, a blue 1979 Mazda 626. Police executed warrants with 25 officers, including forensic investigator Barry Peters, clad in gloves and coveralls. He immediately took a look at David's car. The vehicle contained large quantities of GSR and gunshot propellant on the carpet which lined the inside of the trunk. Peter took samples from David's car back to his lab for examination. The process of analysing all the car samples took four long years to complete due to the volume of debris and dirt in the carpet. (laughs) Must have been a lot of debris and dirt in that carpet. That was like Kelly's car. Peters also found GSR on the driver's side door handle, the light switch on the right-hand stalk from the steering wheel column and the rear vision mirror. All those locations were consistent with a right-handed shooter getting into the car, switching on the headlights and adjusting the rear vision mirror. Peters believed the size and number of particles were significant. He said it indicated that they were deposited in the car very soon after the gun had been fired, as GSR particles are not sticky and tend to smear and fall off within a short time. Peters found a vital link between David's car and Colin Winchester's body, a chipped disc particle of heavy charred propellant residue matching a particle found in Colin's hair near his wound. Peters also found GSR from several other ammunition brands, not just the PNC type used in the murder. After a series of tests, he was able to show this residue had come out of a silencer. 
When a Ruka 1022, which has a silencer fitted, is shot, an amount of GSR builds up within the silencer. So if you fire some Sterling and Remington ammunition and then fire some PMC, all the subsequent shots generated Sterling and Remington partially burnt propellant GSR as well as the PMC. Oh, okay, so that's what you were talking about earlier too when you said we'll get to that later. That's right. Peters was certain that the driver of the blue 1979 Mazda 626 was the person who killed Colin Winchester. After the first raid on David's unit, police set up a surveillance operation to track his every movement. They planted audio devices around his flat, tapped his phone lines and followed him whenever he went out. One of the objects of this intense scrutiny was the possibility that David, as a key person of interest, may lead them to the murder weapon. As you can imagine, David was atomically pissed off about this turn of events. He complained loudly about what he described as police harassment and intensely protested to politicians, media and the police ombudsman. Police spent months checking gun dealers and newspaper trading adverts and traced hundreds of sales of the common Ruger rifles. The breakthrough finally came when they looked into a Ruger rifle which had been sold just a few weeks before by a dealer in Queanbeyan named Lewis Clarenbeek. Clarenbeek gave police the shell casings that had been left behind after the gun was test-fired in a quarry a few weeks before the murder. The shells from the test firing bore the same distinctive markings as the shells found at the murder scene. Just to make absolutely sure they had positively identified the actual murder weapon, the police traced it to its previous owner and found some shells he had fired some years before in nearby bushland. They too matched the ones from the murder scene. Unfortunately, the gun dealer couldn't identify the man who purchased the weapon and even his description of him was vague. But he did recall that the man didn't want to buy the telescopic sight. The dealer thought that this was unusual. Soon after, a Canberra gun buyer came forward to say that he saw David Eastman at Lewis Clarenbeek's house and a woman said that she saw a blue vehicle similar to David's car parked nearby. Other dealers came forward to say that David had looked at and considered buying a number of guns from them. All these investigations were long and detailed and the inquiry extended for months to years. The national media coverage began to decline and most Australians outside of Canberra started to lose interest in the matter. As the circumstantial evidence slowly mounted, David Eastman moved from being a person of interest to the main suspect and the police surveillance operation became more intense. Police patrol cars would circle David's house 24 hours a day taking pictures of him. One not-so-hidden aspect of David's character revealed by the phone taps was his extraordinary tenacity and determination to pursue his objectives. The recording showed that he would sometimes make 50 calls to the same person until he got what he wanted. A coronial inquest into Colin Winchester's murder was opened in 1991. Here the coroner had to explore every possible motive into the killing. Colin's family, who attended the inquest, were forced to listen to all manner of idle gossip, innuendo and rumour as it was aired in open court. It became clear on the 14th day of the inquest that David Eastman was the only viable suspect. However, the inquest ended with an open finding, but the judge did dismiss all allegations of a mafia hit or corruption from within the AFP and of Colin Winchester. Not long after the inquest ended, David Eastman was finally arrested and charged with Colin Winchester's murder. It had taken more than five years of intensive investigation to get to this point. David being David, well, he was not about to go down without a fight. 
The trial began in the ACT Supreme Court on May 2nd, 1995. David Eastman's performance in court quickly became the stuff of Aussie legend. He sacked his lawyers, then rehired them, then sacked them again, eventually deciding to indulge in representing himself, which is a narcissist's wet dream. As his own counsel, he insulted and abused the judge and at one point hurled a jug of water across the courtroom. He would tear up documents in open court and throw them about the room like confetti. A court official noted, It would not be an exaggeration to describe it as chaotic. David Eastman made vile, foul-mouthed, vituperative comments to the judge and prosecutor, and he was removed from the trial for a time and placed in a separate room with a two-way video link. A court official told the media, His honour was able to supervise the sound control so that the volume could be turned down when the appellant's abusive language warranted such action. At one point when David was representing himself, the following exchange occurred. Justice Carruthers said, Well, now do you have any questions by way of cross-examination of the witness? I wish to ask your honour why you were such a lying cunt. Yes, well, I will treat that as a no. During the case, the Crown presented David's motive as being his long-standing hatred of police and Colin Winchester's refusal to agree with his outrageous conspiracy theories. The prosecutor detailed all the forensic evidence and the witness sightings. Amongst the most damning evidence was Barry Peters' GSR matching of the murder scene and David Eastman's car. Then there was the evidence from David Eastman's phone recordings where he told a friend, It was the first man I killed. It was a beautiful feeling, one of the most beautiful feelings I've ever known. Mm -hmm. But the quality of the tapes was so bad that David's lawyer said the word killed could just as easily have been the word kissed. It was the first man I had kissed. It was a beautiful feeling. One of the most beautiful feelings I've ever known. Yeah, that works. Also, remember that witness, Tara, who two nights before the murder saw a blue car parked near the Winchester home and as she passed by, the driver seemed to deliberately conceal his face? I remember. She remembered the plate as being YPQ038. David Eastman's plate was YMP028. That's pretty darn close. David Eastman was also seen accessing electoral roll information. Colin Winchester's name and address had just been added as he had just moved from Melbourne. Was this how he got hold of Colin's address? In November 1995, the jury returned a unanimous finding of guilty. When Justice Carruthers sentenced David Eastman to life in prison, he praised the investigation as one of the most skilled, sophisticated and determined forensic investigations in the history of criminal investigation in Australia. Or was it? After the sentencing, Gwen Winchester told media outside of court... In the years that followed, David Eastman lodged a long list of appeals and legal challenges and continued to loudly protest his innocence. He would later be found to suffer a paranoid personality disorder, which he would claim unsuccessfully had made him unfit to plead in his 1995 trial. But this story was far from over. Even though David lost his first inquiry, a second inquiry would stir up a legal shitstorm. 
In 2012, Justice Martin recommended David Eastman's murder conviction be quashed. He suggested a retrial would not be feasible given the passage of time as a number of witnesses had died. But a full bench of the ACT Supreme Court disagreed, finding it was in the interest of justice to order a new trial. David Eastman sought bail and was released in August 2014 to an awaiting media frenzy after 19 years in prison. Four years after David was released, he returned to the ACT Supreme Court to again answer charges he shot Colin Winchester. Jury selection will be difficult. At the time of his murder conviction, David Eastman had accrued 128 charges of making threatening phone calls. As a part of his bail conditions for his retrial, he wasn't allowed to approach 200 individuals. It's hard to think of a wrongful conviction in Australia without thinking of Lindy Chamberlain, ever since it turned out that a dingo did take baby Azaria. But this wasn't like the Lindy Chamberlain case, as David had virtually no supporters and was not well liked. While a hundred jurors are usually impaneled for cases in the ACT Supreme Court, for this one they drew on 500. When asked to raise their hand if they'd heard of David Eastman, the vast majority were disqualified. Sixteen were eventually chosen, of which twelve would make the verdict. With the second day of trial underway, David told the court that police had deliberately placed him under immense pressure during their investigation, hoping he would crack and make a confession. The resources deployed against David were vast. Police bugged his apartment and tailed him everywhere. It was a deliberately overt and in-your-face surveillance at times, the court heard. Police knew of Eastman's personality disorder and were advised to keep up regular contact with their suspect in the hope of tipping him over the edge. That method was based on advice from a psychiatrist who had suggested the two-pronged attack as a way to pressure him to crack. The inquiry found the harassing and provocative conduct was undertaken with the deliberate intention of provoking the applicant into saying something incriminating, which could be recorded on listening devices in his home. They falsely accused David of homosexual activities with boys and would often knock on his door unannounced to return property. On one occasion, officers stuck their foot in the door when David tried to dismiss them. They monitored David during his daily swim at a Canberra pool and had a female officer sunbathe at the pool every day. Detective Sergeant Ninnis, who was the lead detective on the case, would even swim at the pool at the same time as David to keep eyes on him. David frequently complained of harassment to his lawyer, Stuart Pilkington. He wrote to the police to tell them that his client did not want to take part in any more interviews. In response, Pilkington said he received a drunken call from Detective Sergeant Ninnis. He told the inquiry, Detective Sergeant Ninnis said words to the following effect, I got your fucking letter. If I want to talk to your little cunt of a client, I'll fucking well talk to him when I fucking well like. You can stick your fucking letter where it hurts most. What? In his heart? Oh, where? The inquiry found the strategy was deliberate and inappropriate, even for the attitudes accepted in the 1980s and 90s. David was followed to a beach in Naruma on the New South Wales south coast and officers would hide in camouflage at the National Botanic Gardens where he would regularly walk. And then came the evidence from the famous ballistic and forensic expert Barry Peters, not his real name. Now let's talk about why there's a gag order on his name. 
Witnesses testified to Barry Peters' aversion to peer review, his disciplinary and procedural breaches, his history of questionable conclusions and overselling his expertise. The so-called expert had made embarrassingly basic errors. He mixed up evidence taken from David Eastman's car and the crime scene. The mix-up was slammed. For a forensic scientist, it doesn't get any worse than that. Barry Peters also accidentally destroyed evidence, overstated his conclusions, and used a deeply flawed database of ammunition types prepared by a student to reach the conclusion that the gunshot residue in David's boot and that at the scene were one and the same. Yeah, this is why a lot of people find this case similar to Lindy Chamberlain's. That involved a lot of junk signs and bad forensics. Yeah, well... Prosecutors maintained that even without the forensics, there was plenty of circumstantial evidence to prove David Eastman's guilt. After months of evidence and testimony, at 10.15am on November 22, 2018, on the seventh day of deliberations, the jury finally ended the justice system's dogged 30-year chase of David Eastman when they returned a verdict of not guilty. David Eastman bowed to them and mouthed, Thank you. David has now lodged a case for compensation. He may be entitled to millions of dollars for wrongfully spending 19 years in jail. His legal aid lawyer, Angus Webb, proclaimed, Justice has been done. A gutted Winchester family immediately released a statement. We believe the verdict is wrong and we are extremely disappointed given the significant volume of compelling evidence. Winchester's widow, Gwen, died without any semblance of closure. She passed away several months after Mark Eastman's conviction was quashed and he was released. It's been 30 years since Colin Winchester was killed and his murder still remains unsolved. That's crazy, isn't it? It's a crazy story. So much circumstantial evidence, but they really couldn't put the gun in his hand, you know? And and look, there, there, there are a lot of coincidences. Yeah, I've seen a lot of cases where people get, go, you know, but they get it, sent away for a lot less, you know. Well, that's right. But reasonable doubt. It should have been there in the first trial. Yeah. So much time's passed too. It's not likely that anything else is going to happen from that. It's also not much of a deterrent um, in terms of people being able to assassinate a high-ranking um, police official and not have any comeuppance. Uh, all of those trials, all of those inquiries, uh, coronial inquest and the investigation, tens of millions of dollars Yeah, but that they cost all, the Australian taxpayer. They all pointed towards David Eastman, right? Well, yeah, but they had blinkers on. Yeah, right, yeah. You know, they really decided early on that that was their guy. Yeah, and then they just focused in and, and harassed him 24-7 for a number of years. Look, there's been a lot of murders that have happened in Australia over the years. One just a couple of years ago down the road from us where, where they flew in some hitmen mm. from Europe and then they flew them straight back out again. Yeah. And, and they'll never catch them. I know, but they, they at least can say that that's what happened. Hmm. Nah. I guess we'll never know. Probably not. Hmm. Hey, Tara, I do have one question for you, though. Mm? What is Aussie As? Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. Sadistic serial killer and all-round rapey asshole Ivan Milat was found guilty in 1996 of murdering seven backpackers whose remains were found in makeshift graves in the Belangelo State Forest. 
Around four weeks ago, Malat went to an appointment at the Prince of Wales Hospital in Randwick, Sydney, where he was diagnosed with esophagus and stomach cancer. Oh, bad. So sad. Tiny violin. The 74-year-old murderer and rapist did not look healthy. Yeah, he's really thin and frail now. His hair's turned white. Even his nefarious handlebar moustache has turned completely white. It's flaccid now. It really is. It used to seem quite virile in a like horrendous way, but now it's just like... Mm, nah, gone are the days of a perky moustache. It's limp. It's limp. Despite this, Malat was in handcuffs with his ankles shackled when he was pushed into the hospital in a wheelchair. Because Malat has been back in the media, a lot of programs have been reaching out to his family members for comment. There's a radio show here called The Kyle and Jackie O Show. Horrible shock jocks. Well, well again, well, he he, he's... Um, kind of uh, believes that he's right about everything and he's, he's opinionated. Um, they invited Malat's grandson, Adrian, to come on the show and talk about him. Now, Ado did not mince words when refusing their offer. Ado's message to them read, I'd rather take a paper cut to the scrotum than talk to some bimbo and fat lard on the radio about any topic, let alone that cockroach Ivan, who's about as important and interesting to me as dry dog shit. I know. He then continued in a nicer tone saying, Thank you, but I will have to decline your offer. Thank you for your understanding. Best wishes. (laughs) He was like, oh, I should get a bit more formal at the end there. (laughs) His firm and fruity response was similar to a statement he gave about his grandfather to a Herald Sun newspaper journalist. He said, Mate, I couldn't give the slightest fuck about that cunt or whether he lives or dies, to be frank. Better off dead anyway and save the taxpayers some dinero. Malat's nephew, Alastair Shipsy, has been, well, a little more insightful, telling reporters that his uncle does not want to die and he wants to clear his name. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, right. He said Malat's condition was very bad and he may only have a couple of weeks to live. Malat will be locked up at the prison hospital within the Long Bay Correctional Complex, where he's likely to die, well, any day now. I want to party with Ado when that shit goes down. Yeah, I think a lot of people will be pleased about that. I know, but pop in champagne corks with Ado and he'll be like, mate, I don't actually give a fuck that he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll be like, come on, Ado, it's a celebration. One of us, one of us. Um, So, yeah, Malat. Malat's going to, well, he's going to cark it and then we're going to bury him in a makeshift grave in the Belanglo State Forest. Well, it's a cork of an Aussie ass. Thanks, Tara. You're welcome. Thank you, Barney, for being you. That's not what you said before. <laughs> no. You had the mics turned on. Uh, no, actually, I've said some terrible things to you since they've been on as you well. You called me a fucking idiot, actually. Yeah, I... the mics were on. Oh, right. You know, I know that, the, that you're going to put that in the outtakes because you love putting it when I'm mean to you in the outtakes. Uh, Those yeah. very rare moments when mm. I'm mean to you. Hey, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll hear him crying into his two cakes. Thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too because we're real thirsty. Oh, yeah. And you know who's buying the drinks this week? It's Alison Schaefermeyer. Yes, thank you, Alison. It's very kind and I hope you're thank feeling you. better. You're not, uh, you're not feeling well after your travels, so um, yeah. get well soon. Rest up. And uh, she wanted to give us more money, but uh, she said she's a little bit poor. But, hey, just give us what you can – you don't have to give us anything. Thank yeah, you so much. thank you. It's um, very special. Yeah. We'd also like to thank our Facebook moderating team. I've been Barney Black. 
And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. You can follow us uh, through our Facebook page or join our Facebook group. We're on Twitter at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram at Bloody underscore Murder underscore podcast. Yeah, Tara puts up some funny shit up there. It's good. Yeah, sometimes. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. I've been keeping that all updated, mm. by the way. There's stuff up there about the uh, Australian Podcast Awards. And the meetup. And the meetup. I put yeah. up some photos, so that's cool. Yeah, if you came, you might see a picture of yourself. Yeah. And then sue us to take it down. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon. Oh, but not as soon as we normally are um, because we actually, it's the middle of the year and we need to take an episode off just to uh, catch up on everything that needs to be done. Yeah, we're going to have a wee mid-season break. Yeah. I hope that's okay with all you beautiful listeners and patrons. Uh, So yeah, that means uh, there won't be an episode now for four weeks, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, but there are like 46 on our patron site. So if you get desperate, you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Yeah, which you can cancel at any time. I know mm. lots of people do. <laughs> Once they've heard it. <laughs> Once they've heard one of our early, brilliant early episodes, they're like, oh, for God's sake, no, I'm, my ears are burning. Well, there's only two more things to say, Tara. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Hey Tara, just a reminder and our listeners that you know you can get baby clothes uh, on our merch site with the Bloody Murder logo. (laughs) Now I'm not thinking for your baby because that'd be weird, but for your pets. Yeah, which isn't weird at all, dressing up your pets. No, no, all all dogs and cats should get dressed up at one point or another. Yeah, 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 we did it to Poppy. She wasn't super into it, but um, I think we gave her some treats though and she was like, oh okay, I'll suck it up for treats. She did like treats. Oh, she loves treats. Wearing t-shirts, she was a bit meh. But uh, she looked very cute in them. She did. I recommend everyone do it. Mm. And uh, then send us pics, please. <laughs> Absolutely. We want to see pictures of your pets in child-sized bloody murder merchandise because we're very smart people with uh, our priorities in life very straight. Well, it really would make this podcasting uh, career complete. If ah, I had that, that's yeah. really our one and only goal. Yeah, well, I mean, why, why do we do it? We do it for that and also just a little yeah. bit of spite. Oh, yeah. Revenge. <laughs> Revenge podcasting. <laughs> Revenge on the ears of the people. Uh, hey, baby. Put it away. Hey, baby. That was me waving goodbye to my hey, baby. Can you do that again now? All the money and the comment should be friends. All the money and the comment should be friends. Uh, I, I watched someone made me sing Red Hot Chili Peppers in, in that voice once. That was good. What's a good song to do in that voice? Oh, the wind blows high and the wind blows low. Oh, the hills of my Kentucky. Now let's see shout and say hello. Tara, where's your trousers? Oh, I'm just down from the Isle of Skye. Ain't too bright and I'm awful shy. And the lassie shout as I go by. Tyler, they're a fuckton. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse me. Ableist language. Sorry, they, they say, hey, baby. It doesn't go like that. It goes, hey, baby. Oh, don't tell me how to be sexy, Barney. Hey, how baby. You know? I know. I, have... <laughs> I can pretend to be sexy, Barney. <laughs> hey, baby. Hey, baby. Hello, Bonnie Blanc. How do you do that? Do you have to stick a finger up your ass? How many fingers? 
No, I closed my throat over. I closed my throat no, over. No, kind of like that. It's a little bit like that. It's a little bit not like that. I don't think you're smart enough to comprehend. <laughs> I, I believe. Do you, do you I believe like, you're right. Do you like it when I diss you in a fucking ridiculous voice? Well, that's the same oh. as your normal voice. <laughs> That hurts just as much. <laughs> in your heart. In my heart. In my heart. It hurts me in my heart, Tara. <laughs> Be nice to me. <laughs> oh, wow. Where do you keep your heart? I haven't seen it in a while. It's on my sleeve, of course. Oh, God, really? Yeah, That'd just call right. me Heathcliff. Oh, me. I'm just I'm so hard. I'm so cold. <laughs> At the end of my window cold. Oh, it gets dark, it gets lonely on the other side of you. <laughs> it gets dark, it gets lonely on the other side of you. I'm stuck on you. <laughs> I've got a feeling down deep in my soul that I just can't lose. I wear the skins of my enemies' faces on my butt. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when that nurse said to you, what did she say? You've got a fat. She's, I was on morphine and I'm lying on a... Well, I gave it to me. And so I'm high and I could barely move. Wasn't your own morphine? No, and she slapped me on the belly and my naked belly and this Asian doctor and said, Oh, look at your fat belly. <laughs> she, did she ask if it was full of caramel, said, like a caramello koala? And I said, think of your Hippocratic oath. And she went, shut up. She said, oh, look at your fat belly. <laughs> That's not doing no harm. I, I was hurt in my heart. Oh. I was hurt in my fat belly. Oh. She slapped it and laughed at it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not normal doctor behaviour. Maybe no, she not. thought because you're on morphine you wouldn't remember. Well, maybe she thought one for you, one for me. Oh, maybe you reckon she was, she was high too? Ah, Dr. Benway. Oh, you, you ah. should have gone like this. Like with your belly button and gone, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, doctor. My name is Senor Neval. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do not like to be slapped. <laughs> when the assistant commissioner of the Australian Federal Police, Colin Winchester, was assassinated in his driveway in the summer of 1989, the nation was set into a, what? <laughs> the nation was butthurt. <laughs> the nation got itchy and hungry. These feelings were... <laughs> these feelings? These feelings? That's nice and easy going. Oh, these feelings. These... Oh, they hurt me in my little heart and my tum-tum. They made me itchy. Oh, shut up. <gasps> no. Colin just had an unquenchable thirst for knowledge. Hey, baby, I want to know stuff. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> and I'm so thirsty. <laughs> I'm thirsty to know stuff. Hey, baby. <laughs> Ah, uh, so it's going to be like this, is it? It is. <laughs> okay, I, I, the die has been cast. Australia was stuttered? Uh, stunned. Uh, that's, uh, why did I write stuttered? Because you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. That's a final yeah. fucking piece of the puzzle falls into place. <laughs> I'm just wondering what's been wrong all my life. And it's because I'm a fucking idiot. Yeah, well, you know. Oh, now I get it. Really? I never thought you were bright enough to get it. Yeah. I need to go to fucking Idiots Anonymous. Anonymous. FIA. I need to go to an FIA meeting. <laughs> yeah, just, well, I'm just a tubby uh, cunt, so I wouldn't worry about uh, what I say. No, you don't all have to speak, but uh, you're first time here, Barney. What would you like to say? Hey, baby! <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> oh, welcome. Welcome, everybody. Let's give Barney a warm welcome. Would you like to tell us a story about you being a complete fucking idiot recently? That well, we could- my name's Barney Back. Long time fucking idiot. Just found out. <laughs> <laughs> it's been one day since I haven't been a fucking idiot. <laughs> Well done, Barney. Well done. One day. That's good. I'm not sure you've got your one day chip yet, dude. No. <laughs> no. Do they give them out for hours? Because you've maybe got half a chip. Half a chip. Pull the plow, but there ain't no reason why they can't be friends. Who's the fucking idiot now? <laughs> it's me, isn't it? It's you. It's me, isn't it? You have it? to come come with me to those meetings. Hi, my name's Tara. I'm Peter searched Colin's body for the GSR or gunshot residue deposited on his wounds when fired on at close range. Mm, when fired on at close range, it sounded like you'd never said those words before. I don't think I have. <laughs> <laughs> words. English is a second language. What's about fucking idiots your first language? I don't know. I don't. Fucking idiots don't even have a first language. Probably farting would you be your first language. Oh, that's just unkind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did say I was a cunt. I'm very self-aware. It doesn't make me a better person, but it makes me aware of how shit I am, okay? I get it. Peter searched Colin's body for all the fucks that Barney gave. <laughs> but he, he couldn't, found two. And he found none. Oh, right. Okay, well, that's different. What did you think we were? Twins of some kind. Oh. Bags being DeVito. <laughs> you always call DeVito. It's not fair. Okay, you can I don't be want DeVito. to be Arnie. I'll be Arnie. Can't we, can't we be actual twin... DeVito brothers. Also, we're both DeVito. Yeah. I could be Lady DeVito. Lady oh. DeVito. <laughs> and we combine to make one huge DeVito. <gasps> Gigantic. Thunderdome yeah. DeVito. Yeah, that's I'm right. I'm into that. <laughs> Do you sometimes wonder why the leaves fall from the trees? Life is empty. Do you Fill get- it with anal beads. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever get tired of Barney's shit? I know I do. <laughs> After the first raid on David's house, police set up a surveillance operation. It's a flat, really. Flat. Okay, fine. Or unit. Bungalow. After the first raid on David's unit. Crib. (laughs) After the first raid on David's crib. The Paul set up surveillance operation to track his every movement. (laughs) And followed him whenever he went out. Baby, I've been watching you. Baby, I've been watching you. Watching everything you do. I just can't help but feeling someone else is stealing you away from me. (laughs) That was hauntingly beautiful. Thanks. Hey, baby. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 